starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, we, uh, we honor you this morning, and we continue just to worship you. Thank you for the fact that we can worship you in song and freedom, and we thank you that we can worship you in the hearing and the understanding and the, the, the repentance caused by your word. Uh, thank you for the story, such an amazing story, God, and how you moved um, in this situation of healing this man and, and your disciple boldness, Lord. I pray that we would be impacted. Um, I pray that we would be changed through the course of this, Lord. Open every heart, including mine. And uh, we love you. We ask for your power to be manifested here this morning. Uh, as we pray every week for a church in Houston, God, we pray for Grace Presbyterian. Thank you for them, Lord. Uh, we pray for the pastors. You'd encourage them, bless them, Lord, and uh, just fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord, as well as everybody that attends, that they may impact their community. Uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. It's good to see you. Okay. So Seth, my son, my only son, my old eldest, is playing lacrosse. He, for the first time, and they had they had practices last semester, and he's about to have his first game today. He's been practicing for a few weeks, and at a couple practices ago, they decided, okay, guys, we need to come up with a team name. And, and that was exciting. I'm so glad I got to be there to, hear, to overhear that conversation. And uh, they throw, uh, threw out a bunch of funny stuff. But the best one, well, the best one got picked. Seth actually threw out dragons. He loves dragons. And so we've had talks about this, but he loves dragons. And uh, so dragons got picked. But the one that was in the running with dragons was, uh, 
we want to be the come at me bros. <laughs> and uh, it got passed up to the commissioner because literally it was a vote and it was four to four, come at me bros, four, and dragons got four. And the commissioner objected because of bros for some reason. I don't really understand it. It's an all-guy team. It's an all-guy league, but whatever. Um, but I just thought that was such a delightfully funny and yet appropriate name. Like, it's so offensive. Like, come at me, bros. You know I mean? Like, you want to be aggressive. That's one of the reasons Seth's playing. He's got pads. He's a warrior. Um, and so I just, I loved that. I was so tickled by that. And I feel like this passage is, the, it's like a come at me, bros passage. It's funny. Peter says some things that are so disarming. They're razor sharp logically. Um, they're perfect responses, but it's two fishermen standing up against the elite of the elite. Um, the religious elite are the equivalent of like Harvard professors plus medical doctors plus law enforcement officers at the same time. And then you got two fishermen that are uneducated standing up against them and just, they're just chopping them down. And, the, and the, um, the funniest verse, I think, is verse nine, which really crystallizes the whole passage where Peter says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So I titled, I titled the, the talk, the sermon this morning, The Spirit of Jesus, because what you see, if nothing else, is you see Christ himself. If you read the Gospels and then you read this exchange, what you're seeing is the living Christ working and speaking through these men. He sounds just the same because it is Jesus himself, but I could have titled this man what some commentators title this passage, uh, I could have titled this sermon what some commentators title this passage, which is something like being put in prison for healing a guy. Like it's just, it's absurd. Um, and so Peter just goes after them. It's a come at me bros passage where he's fierce and he's funny all wrapped into one. Um, I think the most delightful thing about the way that Peter answers them is that it's Jesus that we're seeing. And you realize again he never left us. Just like he said, um, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see Christ speaking boldly through Peter here. I remember um, I, I studied in Sevilla, Spain, in southern Spain for a semester when I was in college. And I remember sitting on the rooftop, looking out over the, the red tile roof city and thinking and writing and reading. That'll be no surprise to you that I was doing those things. And um, and all of a sudden, the idea for the first time in my life that I could remember anyway hit me. I was thinking in particular about one of my friends that I, that I missed that was uh, a friend at university that was back, back in North Carolina. And he, he had become really, he and I had become really close that last semester. And I was thinking about how much I loved and enjoyed him and his personality. And it hit me, the idea hit me, everything I love about Jonathan is what I love about, is Jesus, and, and, it, and it just, the simple but true idea hit me, like, it's Jesus in Jonathan, making Jonathan more who Jonathan is created to be, that I love so much. And that's what you see here. What, we, what is so wonderfully disarming and powerful about Peter, this man who, before the crucifixion, was so confident in himself and so earnest, and yet, when challenged by the authorities, when challenged by, like, a, a, a female servant in a courtyard, as to whether or not he knew Jesus, he failed three times. He denied Christ three times. Whereas here, he's in front of the intelligentsia just saying, hey, we're going with God. And he preaches Christ to them. So this is, this is Jesus. I also think of, uh, so I think of that time on the rooftop in Sevilla. I also think of, uh, I don't know if, it, I think it's called Pan, the movie Pan, that old movie with Robin Williams about Peter Pan. Hook, it's called Hook, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Hook. Everyone's like, Pan didn't, didn't go over well with this crowd because it's not the name. Hook. 
Um, that movie about Peter Pan and Robin Williams is in it. Years, I mean, 25 years old, right? Um, and there's that scene where the kid, you know, so Peter Pan played by Robin Williams, he's gotten older, and Peter Pan's supposed to be a young kid, but he's gotten older and come back into Neverland, and they don't believe it's him, but then one of the kids who knew Peter when he was younger looks into, he gets really close, like uncomfortably close to Robin Williams to his eyes, and he looks into his eyes, and he like rubs, yeah, he rubs his face, and he's like, and his eyes get real bright all of a sudden, he goes, there you are, Peter. Um, and I feel, I feel like, I feel like doing that with, with Peter here and with John, but like grabbing them by the face or by the arms and going, there you are, Jesus. Like, there you are. You're reigning in heaven, and here you are through your people, through your men, that you left for a time, but you sent your spirit. And the spirit that is called the spirit of Jesus multiple times throughout the New Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's the spirit that we have in us. He's with us. He's in us. And if he's not, he will come into us as we believe on him as the one who has come for us and who loves us. Um, and so, again, um, I've said it a few times, but he said, behold, I will never leave you nor forsake you before he left. And this is what he's talking about. He sends us his spirit, and in sending us his spirit, he sends us his very self. Um, he said, it's better for you that I go because he knew he was gonna send his spirit to live in us and not just be next to us as a man. Um, and in Acts 1, Again, the first sermon that I preached here, we see that Luke, who wrote this, tees up the idea that in the gospel of Luke, it was Jesus who was speaking and doing stuff, right? We know the gospels are about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. Well, Luke says, this is the continuing. He strongly implies at the book of Acts, the book of the church, when Jesus has ascended to the Father and he's reigning in heaven, is Jesus's acts and words continuing through his church. He's in us by his spirit, um, so Acts 16, Acts 16, 7, to take something from this book where it specifically gives us this doctrine. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. This is, some, uh, this is Paul and others who were, who were doing some missionary work, planting churches, preaching the gospel. It says what? But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So it's Jesus himself in us when his spirit is in us. Um, you have that in Romans 8, 9, 2, Philippians 1, 19, and 1 Peter 1, 11. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is Christ himself. It's Christ himself in us. Um, so the first point here, when we witness for Christ, when we proclaim him in word and deed, um, we will greatly annoy. You see that in verse 2. We will greatly annoy some people. I just want to, I mean, I just want to settle it right here. We'll dig into sort of how this happens here. We see that the, the rulers, the intelligentsia, the who's who of the Jewish world in this Roman-dominated place are greatly annoyed at Peter and John. For doing what? For healing a guy. For healing a guy that's been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old, so for over four decades, this guy's not been able to walk. And he's healed, and they're greatly annoyed. Guys, when we manifest Christ, when we preach him in the way that we're living and in what we're saying, when we proclaim the gospel, um, even though what we're proclaiming, and we, see, we saw this some on Thursday, even though what we're proclaiming is that Christ has come to set you free. He has come to, to give all of himself for you and to express the perfect love of the Father by laying his life down for you. This is such good news, but it will greatly annoy uh, the world. It will greatly annoy. We just need to, we just need to go ahead and see that here and, and accept that, like Jesus said over and over again, um, the world rejected me. Of course it's going to reject you. That's one sign that you're mine. We need to expect that and stop being surprised by that. 
Okay, that's a mark of true discipleship. Um, the rulers, I, I want to contend that they weren't just greatly annoyed, though. The word also means greatly disturbed, troubled, or burdened. Um, I think some of these guys were thinking, these are the guys that crucified Christ, as Peter continues to tell them. And I think some of them are thinking, what have we done? These men are preaching the Jesus that we murdered, that he, they're preaching that he's alive and that he is the Messiah and the Lord of all. And they're, these uneducated men who are so timid and hiding, they're so bold right now. What is, what is happening? Um, and so I think that they're not just annoyed, but, but deeply, deeply disturbed. And sometimes when we press that disturbance down, as we are trying to run from Christ and run from the truth of the gospel, it can bubble up as annoyance, okay? Um, so they are annoyed, but they're also, I think it's something deeper happening too. Peter Wagner puts it like this. He says, killing Jesus apparently hadn't stopped the movement. That kind of crystallizes the point. They thought when we kill Jesus, the, this, must, this Messiah thing is done. But actually, the content of Peter's message is, no, that just started everything. Okay, now you have a thousands of little Christs running around, okay? Because actually he used that to save us and now he's alive and he's reigning and he's in us and the movement continues to grow, okay? Um, so this must have really just terrified them. So let's press in a little bit to how they were annoyed. Um, I think that um, they were also annoyed because deep, deeply disturbed Deeply disturbed, but also annoyed because they had a hold on the power. They were the power brokers of the day, okay? And their position was quite nice. Um, and they, what, these, what Peter and John are doing is they're in massively on the temple grounds, in the center of the center city, Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of kings, where this, this is the hive. This is the hive of the who's who. This is the hive of their power base, um, Peter and John are greatly disrupting, here's the word, the status quo. And these guys are all about maintaining status quo. The Sadducees um, were a small group of men who had, quote, disproportionate political power, according to scholars. Um, the Romans essentially had left the internal governance of the whole city of Jerusalem in their hands. They were the governors as well as the religious leaders. So status quo, they had already shown that status quo was something, and maintaining their power base was something that they were willing to kill for. They murdered Jesus. They had already showed that, okay? Um, and I just want to say that I feel like if we're going to let this text do any work on us at all, I feel like we have to admit and I have to admit that I'm much the same. That I am so afraid of allowing Jesus to disrupt my status quo. Can I just let that sit for a little bit? I don't even, I'm not even going to unpack it that much. I just think there are so many things in my life that I want to go smoothly, and I honestly don't really want the crucified and risen Jesus to disrupt my life that much. But guess what? He's going to. And he's going to disrupt other people's lives. He, if he is the king, crucified and risen and Lord of all, who demands either all of us or nothing, hot or cold, but man, if you're warm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's kind of terrifying. But if he is the king who laid his life down for us and was crucified to, to own us body and soul, then he deserves all of us and that is, status quo is gonna be a complete impediment to progressing in the life of Christ. And so when we, when we proclaim the true gospel that God has laid his life down for you and calls you to freedom and calls you to be his body and soul, it's going to offend and threaten and disturb and to annoy people. Okay, 
Jesus said it himself. He said, count the cost. Count the cost. A guy said, hey, can I go bury my father first? Which in, in any society is a big deal, but especially in the ancient Near East. Can I, my father just died. Can I go bury him? And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. So when we, when we, I want us to count the cost, to eschew status quo, to follow Christ, and to, as we preach the gospel, to preach the real gospel. And as we do, we just, I want to, us to expect that people are going to be annoyed and disturbed. That's just part of the deal. That should be an encouragement to us. We don't want to try to annoy and disturb people. That's not what I'm saying. But that's going to happen in this power encounter, okay? Um, witnessing to Christ, just plainly, as plainly as I can say this first point witnessing to Christ will get us into trouble. I think that as Christians in the West, we are so, uh, there are a lot of reasons for this, but I can own this completely. We are so enamored with and convinced somehow of the idea that if I can just convince people, if I can just be winsome enough, like, no, sorry. Yes, apologetics have their place, but guess what? Jesus Christ is not of this world, and witnessing, being witnesses to him. I've met with him. I know him. He changed my life. He's coming for you. He demands full allegiance. That is going to get us into trouble. It should be an, guys, it should be an encouragement to us, not a discouragement, okay? Peter's not discouraged by this. Peter is not discouraged by this, all right? Um, Jesus foretold this in Matthew 10. Let me just read a block from, from Matthew 10, 16. He said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you. And this is, this is years before, by the way, this incident. So he's prophesying exactly what's happening. Uh, they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So what happens? As they, as they are pressed and as they are persecuted, they're sent out. They flee, basically, out around the Mediterranean rim of the ancient Near East, which is the civilized world of the time. Okay, what he just said there is exactly the trajectory of the book of Acts. For the next few months, over the course of this year, as we, go, as we march through Acts, that's, what he said is exactly what we see happen. And it's the history of the church as well for the past 2,000 years. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Take the, I want you to take this church into yourself by faith. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak. What did Jesus say, by the way? He said, I only speak what? What I hear my father speaking. What is he promising us? The same thing. You have the same spirit, my spirit, me, from the father, right? Um, for you will be, for it will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, for it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then verse 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they crucified me and called me Satan, what do you think they're gonna do with you? be cheery towards you? I don't think so. The world will always hate Jesus, but it's the world that he came to save. You see? 
and that's the world he sends us into. Um, I just saw a sign yesterday. I don't know where I was even, but it said that the ch- it was on the exit, and it said, we've seen signs like this before, like you're now entering the mission field, you know, at the end of a, but it said, the church is now leaving the building. <laughs> I think it was a guy's t-shirt or something. Oh, I love that. Um, okay. Um, insanity of God, which I quoted last week by a guy named, it's not his name, it's a, it's a false, it's a pseudonym, it's Nick Ripkin. It sounds like a made-up name, doesn't it? Because it is. Um, N-I-K, so strange. Nick Ripkin. Insanity of God. This guy was a, he was a missionary who suffered a ton in a place where other Christians just weren't going in Somalia. Uh, it was war-torn and drought-ravaged. And after years there, he came back totally depleted. And he hadn't seen any fruit. There was fruit, but he hadn't seen it. And he, said, he had this question. Can the church grow and the gospel go forth in such persecution? It was a question that he got like a two-year furlough to come back to the States to really research and ask and spend time with others who were in hard places around the world. So he'd fly to Russia, he'd fly to these other places, asking this question, can the church really grow, hold its own and grow under such terrible persecution? And so after visiting Christians in Russia under former communist rule, he began to see that actually persecution might provide the best soil for growth. This wasn't what he was expecting, but it's what's promised to us. It is what we see in the life of Christ. How, what's the mechanism for our salvation? The cross. The ultimate train wreck in the cosmos. The murder of God. The the arch crime of history, in the words of a Scottish reformed theologian of the 20th century, John Murray, the arch crime of history, we crucified God. And it was that, it was through that that the power of God goes forth to save us, okay? What do we see in the book of Acts? Same thing. It's, through pers- it's not through being on the beach with margaritas that the church thrives. In the mushy middle, the church is always fat and lazy. Under persecution on the edges, on the ragged edges, And even if we're here in a place where we're not persecuted so much, as we are witnesses to Christ with those that God puts us around, we will greatly annoy and disturb people. We will experience persecution. And it's on those edges that the gospel goes forth and the church thrives and um, people get saved. Um, Athanasius said, the blood is the seed. I didn't look it up. I think it's Athanasius. One of the church fathers said, he said, the blood of the church is the seed of the church. It's how the church grows. Persecuting the church is like slamming a fist down on water. When you do that, it spreads, okay? And we see that in the book of Acts, and it's still happening to this day. Um, so, if you look at verse four, as we finish up this point, point one, if you look at verse four, it says that the number of men saved grew to 5,000, about 5,000. The word men is literally, sometimes it's translated men, but it means humans or people. This word is an honor in the Greek, which is men, men only, males, um, and so it could have been up to 20,000 people at this point that had been saved. So the church is really growing through this persecution. As folks are getting put in front of tribunals, whipped, put in jail, as we'll see, the church grows. And I just want to pray at the end of this point before giving just a few parcels of application, Lord, would you do this in our day? Lord, would you do this here? Not, so, not, not for us to bring persecution on ourselves, but that we might be faithful and bold and filled with the Spirit, with the gospel on our lips and in our fingers and in our feet and serving in such a way and Christ to our neighbors and coworkers in such a way that people would be greatly annoyed and disturbed. 
that people would see Christ and come to Christ, all those that he's, that he's chosen for himself, okay? Um, so let me just give you a few lines of application. I'll just drop them and they might help. Let us then count the cost. Okay, let's count the cost. Not be surprised by opposition or rejection, um, but rather, on the contrary, let's be honored that we get to suffer as Christ did and because of him, okay? It's a sign of our connection to him, right? And a badge of honor. Um, let us also know that God's word will never return void. As you preach it, as it goes forth, as you share it with a friend, as you proclaim it, as happened on Thursday night, his word didn't seem like it was accomplishing that much. It kind of did in some ways, but there was a lot of rejection. There was a ton of blindness. People were like, no, we, we don't have a Messiah. We don't need one. We're just gonna clean ourselves up and hope God, and we're just like proclaiming Christ, proclaiming Christ, and it seems like Nothing's getting through, but guess what? God's word has perfect power and he will take it exactly to the hearts and minds he wants to. And it will not return void. And some of that means, and I hate to say this, I don't hate to say it because it's God's word, but I don't think we think about this a lot. Sometimes accomplishing his purposes will mean that his, as his word goes forth, it will harden certain hearts. Do you know that? Do you know that that's all through the scriptures? Do you know why that's one of the main reasons Jesus told parables? was so that people would not understand, but that so those that God called to himself would understand. Do you know that God is sovereign over salvation and that he uses us? So that should give you great peace and comfort. It ain't up to you, and yet he calls you to proclaim the gospel. I just just want you to know that more deeply than you know that. Um, So, and and lastly, um, this should encourage us to proclaim the gospel without shame, which brings me to this point. The second mark that we see here is that the filling of the Holy Spirit, which Peter clearly has, um, get, makes, us bold, get, makes us bold witnesses. Let's just read verse eight. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean he got saved. He was already saved. He was already God's child. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit um, in order to proclaim the gospel in boldness. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means um, this man has been healed, and then he goes on to preach the gospel. Um, So the filling of the Holy Spirit is for bold witness. That's one of the things we see here in verse eight in this passage. Like I said, these guys were the elite of the elite, super intimidating. Let me give you a little bit of background. Annas in verse six, F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, says this of Annas. He says, Annas, the son of Sethi, so almost my son's name, but with an I at the end, Sethi, The Jews kept incredible records, by the way. Annas, the son of Sethi, was appointed to the high priesthood. Um, There was only one high priest, by the way. He was it. By uh, P. Sulpicus Quirinius, legate of Syria, in A.D. 6. So probably about 10, Jesus was probably about 10 years old at this point. And he held the office for, for nine years. Even after his deposition, he continued to exercise great influence. And five of his sons, five of his sons, and one son in law named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. So five of his sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas and one grandson became high priests in the following half century. Um, The Sanhedrin was, quote, that's mentioned in this text, the Senate and the Supreme Court mushed into one of the Jewish nation. Um, It was a council of 70 members plus the high priest who served as president. And that's who these two fishermen bumpkins are standing in front of, guys. You can't get, what my point is, imagine the Senate, the Supreme Court, you're the one getting impeached right now, okay? 
Harvard degrees, medical doctors, law enforcement, out the wazoo, standing there peering at you, okay, and demanding that you give answer. Why are you disrupting the peace? Verse 13, let me read verse 13. By contrast, we see Peter and John. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that'll be my final point. Um, but the word there means, okay, the word trans, that's translated uneducated, Greek is agramatoi. So grammar, you can hear the word grammar in there, agramatoi. A on the beginning of the word means not, right? Like atheist means I'm not a theist. I don't believe in God, okay? It means unlearned or unlettered. Literally, though, you could say it means they didn't even know their ABCs. Did they know how to read? Yes, but they, they were completely unlearned. They spent their time fishing. They were blue collar to the hilt. Um, this whole council has PhDs and massive social connections, and then across from them stand two fishermen. Um, God is not impressed with what the world is impressed with. Can I say that? He's not impressed. Um, he rarely uses impressive people. Rarely. Sometimes he does. He doesn't need impressive credentials. One of my favorite sermons is, I still have it on cassette tape. It's, it's called, um, the title of the sermon is called, God is not impressed with intelligence. God is not, and I kept it when I was getting my PhD in Scotland in my desk, and I made a point of listening to it multiple times per year because he searches the whole scriptures and he says, I can't find a single place. This guy's himself an Old Testament PhD, and um, he says, I can't find a single place where it says that God, God is impressed with a lot of things. He's impressed with humility. He's impressed when we go low. He's impressed with repentance. He's impressed when we put our necks out there for him. He's impressed when we serve one another and love each other. He's impressed with self-sacrifice. He's not impressed with intelligence. Now, that doesn't mean intelligence isn't from him. It is from him. We're called to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Okay, but he's not impressed with intelligence and he's not impressed with education. Does that mean that we should not use those things for God's glory? Of course it doesn't. But what it also means is that it doesn't impress him, it doesn't cow him, and also a lot of times those things take us away from God. Usually it's the intelligentsia who are greatly opposed to God. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that. But if you have those things, use them for God's glory. He's given them to you, their tools and their gifts, okay? Um, F.F. Bruce, again, he says, the apostles are technically on the defensive but actually, so technically, right, they're the ones on trial. They're the ones in the dock, as it were, to use a Lewisian phrase. But actually, they've gone over to the attack. That's the funny part about this, is that Peter is up against it. His back's up against the wall. And as it were, he has the proverbial gun up against him in his nose. And they're like, give an answer. And they have all the credentials. And they're in his hood. He's in their hood, right? He's in the bees hive. He's in the serpent's nest. He's right in the middle of the temple courts in Jerusalem as a fisherman. And they apparently, they did crucify his leader, but and they thought he was dead. He's not anymore. And um, he's technically on the defensive, but he goes on the attack. And that's the beautiful thing. That's what happens when the Spirit of God fills us. Um, this is not of Peter, his bravado, his courage, his sterling character. Again, think about Peter before the Spirit filled him in his own strength. Sh just shameful. That's where all of us are. But when the Spirit fills you, normal, beautiful friend, 
me, you, we're all just normal, beautiful people that God loves and has given his life for, right? Just like Peter. doesn't matter what our education is. When the, when the spirit of Jesus Christ fills you, he will give you everything you need to preach his life-saving, life-transforming message, what he's come and done to the person that's in front of you. He gave Peter everything he needed. Peter went on the attack. It's honestly one of the funniest passages in the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit more. Um, he will give you, he turned this man who was a mouse into a lion, and he can do the same with you because it's not you, it's, it's him, it's Jesus. Look at, let's look briefly before we get to point three, and three, points three and four are very short. Let's look at Peter's offensive um, and then at the ruler's defensive, okay? Um, Peter's offensive, verse nine, as I read, it's just hilarious. He's basically like, if we're being put on trial for a man that was, that was lame from birth being healed, then okay. That's what he says in verse nine, right? In verse 10, super bold, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, he could have just said, hey, he could have just said, we healed a man. Shrug your shoulders. Are you gonna so sue me? You know, that could have been his speech. That's all that they were, right? He didn't stop there though. He says, let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, finger in the face, man, these guys are both frightened and, and infuriated. Whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. And then in verse 11, which I'll come back to in just a second, he plucks this Old Testament verse in, from Psalm 118 um, in a profound way in saying that like the very, as you're building your religious, and we saw some of this on Thursday, right? The Muslim and Jewish religious edifice that is built by which they live in the punctilious law-keeping. Although I am surprised at how unpunctilious some of their law-keeping is, that that's the very thing that they think is gonna save them. But back in the day, man, these guys, they were the architects. They kept it all. They kept every, and they added to God's law. They did more than it was required. Even the spices that they used to cook, you know, they would tithe, they would take a tenth of those spices, like, oh, rosemary, hang on. Gotta take a tenth of that give it to God. Oh, hang on, saffron. Take a tenth of that. I'm going to tithe that. They tithe their spices. They washed everything, their utensils, even the couches that they sat on. You can imagine they, they baptized their couches. They, they, they sprinkled their couches, washed their everything, pots, everything. Um, Peter says, you're building with stones, as it were, this religious thing to God, this temple. And you find this stone that doesn't fit at all and he looks ugly to you. And the, the stone is actually like hanging out with prostitutes and lawbreakers and notorious sinners. And he's saying, law keeping will get you nowhere. Come to me if you're hungry. Come to me if you're thirsty and I will give you rest and I will satisfy you and I will take you to the Father because I'm the only one that knows him and I'm the only way to him. They hated that stone and they rejected that stone. They crucified him. And Peter's saying that very stone that you rejected is now the cornerstone of this place that God is building to live in. And it's called his people. Okay? And it's built on Christ. And so it's an amazing thing um, that Peter does. And the Holy Spirit is the one that helps Peter see that in Scripture. Do you see? Um, and then verse 12, just uh, it's so amazing. This verse is one of the richest and most forceful verses in the Bible. Let me just read it. Um, Peter says, he says, and there is salvation in no one else. I just want to say, just to kind of, again, use 
what happened on Thursday night as an illustration because it's the closest thing to us right now. Um, the idea that there is salvation in no one else and in nothing else. There's not salvation in any of your law keeping. There's not salvation in Muhammad. There's not salvation in Quran. Um, there's salvation in no one else but Jesus. And salvation is in him. It's not in a, even in a formula or a creed, okay? It's not in the church even. It's in Jesus Christ himself. He is our salvation. Um, this is deeply offensive, and, it's the, and it is the gospel. It's the only gospel. No one else can save us. Nothing else can save us. Only Jesus. He says, salvation in no one else. Um, verse 12, again. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see that word must? That word must is well translated. It's day in the Greek, and it just means that um, salvation is going forth. It's going to happen, and the, the only way it's going to happen is through Jesus Christ, and it is a force that we can't stop. And so, and so Jesus has come to save, and all those that he has called to himself will be saved, and that's the message that we've been called to proclaim. There's a compulsion, a divine compulsion here. Um, I just want to say, this ought to be the verse that is over our doorposts. This ought to be the verse that is on our eyelids. This ought to be the verse that we, that we close our kids' um, uh, eyes and ears to at night. I want us to meditate on it. I want us to memorize it. It's in our pluralistic uh, culture that stands against the truth. This is the verse that people both hate and need to be saved. This is it, because it says that Jesus alone saves, and in him alone is found salvation. Um, and, and we have a culture right now that says that we absolutely tolerate anything except for absolutes. Um, and Jesus is at once the most narrow way to salvation. It's, it narrows down to one man. Jesus says, you can't be saved except to come through me. That's it. There's no other way. And at the same time, it's the widest thing. Through him, salvation goes out to all the earth. Anyone can be saved. Anyone at all. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your sex is. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. Salvation is found in me, and I can save you. And it must happen if you come to me. It's as good as done. I finish the work. Just come. That is both deeply offensive and, and completely liberating. And that's the message that we ought to expect to offend people, but that we get to witness to as well. Um, and I want to just say, sort of cutting, um, cutting, finishing point two, and then moving briefly, briefly to points three and four. I have some stuff on the on the de- defensiveness that was on Peter's offensive, but how defensive the rulers are. Just briefly, want to chuckle with you guys for a second because I don't want to miss the comedy in this. Jesus was funny. Often we don't give him credit for it enough. Like God is a funny God. He made the duck. He made the duck-billed platypus. You know, I mean, I mean, all these funny things, these crazy. You know, Uranus. What is Uranus? Like the seventh planet in our solar system is on its side. Weird. He's just. He's an eccentric, creative, fun God. And sin is the boring thing. Sin is the thing. I mean, God made sex. God made sex, but sin corrupts sex. Sin corrupts, and sin takes everything. Think about death. And it makes everything into one thing. Everything becomes one thing when we go into the earth, eventually. Sin just homogenizes everything. God is the God of creativity and fun and order. And I could say other things, but we have kids in the room. that God made these things. They're his, right? Um, and verse 14 is just so funny. So, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, these are the rulers, right? This dude is with Peter and John. 
he's standing there. The guy that got healed from birth, who's over 40 now, he's just standing there like totally healed, like as a witness to the power of Christ. And it says what they mount this offensive, but then they say, we had, they had nothing to say in opposition because what? He's standing right there healed. It's hilarious. And then verses 16 and 17, I'll just read them and then move to point three, saying, what shall we do with these men? They're conferring, they're like having a little huddle, you know? What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. In other words, he's healed. There's nothing, we can't hide him. It's happened. But in order that, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone else. Um, and, they, and it said, and then verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people who were jumping for joy. And because, by the way, he kind of ends this passage, and because, by the way, this dude was over 40 who hadn't been able to walk since he was born. And so they couldn't gainsay what had happened. Do you see both the humor and the tragedy of this, though? And do you see how when we deny Christ, we cannot think. The closer we get to Jesus and saving truth, the more blind we become if we deny Christ. They, instead of letting the truth, the evidence, a scientific approach, what's the evidence? The evidence is Jesus is still alive because this man has been healed and he has been an invalid for over 40 years. Instead of following that evidence to its source and going, man, I didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. We crucified him, but you're telling me actually that was the avenue of our salvation. He's alive and I'm sitting here looking at this guy and I'm just putting the pieces together and I'm gonna have to say the evidence is in favor of the fact that you're telling the truth. And besides, look, you aren't even educated and you're roasting us in these arguments. Something is happening here. They're staring into Peter's eyes and going, I see Jesus. But instead of all those rational approaches where they're following the evidence and looking at this guy, they completely admit they can't even find the body of Christ. They don't, even, they don't even ever say Jesus wasn't resurrected. They never say that. You notice that? They never say he wasn't resurrected because they don't have his body. They never can say anything against the fact that this man's been healed. They say he has been healed. So how do we shut them up? That's their only concern is holding onto their power base. Do you see how when you deny Christ, you are blinded to the truth? You are blinded to the truth. Um, let us let go of status quo. Let go of whatever silly power we're holding on to and grab hold of Christ because he is the truth that emancipates and liberates and sets us free, okay? So um, briefly, and I've really already talked about this, so it'll just be a mention. Point three, a mark of the Holy Spirit is that scripture just comes pouring out of us. Every time the Holy Spirit comes on someone, you see boldness and you see that they start quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that fulfills all this stuff, Jewish rabbi friends, that you've been meditating on all your lives. He's the key that unlocks the lock, okay? And so he takes this obscure scripture from Psalm 118, verse 22, that makes not much sense at all when you read it. It's talking about stones and the cornerstone that the builders rejected, and it doesn't make much sense when you read it in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden, he lifts it, and he says, Jesus helps make perfect sense out of this he is the stone that you rejected by crucifying him, and now he is the way to salvation, and on him is built the family of God. See how it makes perfect sense? And, he, and so it's the Holy Spirit coming on him that works in conjunction with God's word. The Holy Spirit always highlights Christ. The Holy Spirit always helps us to see how Christ makes sense of the word. The Holy Spirit always works in conjunction with the word. And so do you see why? And this is my application point for this, and then point four for two minutes, and we're done. Do you see how... Because the, 
the Spirit always wants to work in conjunction with the Scriptures which take us to Jesus, the written Word which takes us to the living Word. The Spirit and the Word and the Father, God who is one. Do you see why Satan wants to, wants to drive a wedge between the Word and the Spirit? Do you see why there are so many churches that are Word-heavy but dry as a bone and they're scared of the things of the Spirit? And they think that they have the ability to discern God's word without the spirit of the living God, without the spirit spotlighting Jesus Christ and and making them alive and equipping them with gifts so they can go out into the world and witness like bold lions for the gospel. And do you see why churches over here, churches that truly love the word, truly love God, churches over here that truly love God and they are aflame with the Holy Spirit of God. All sorts of power like the Corinthian church, all sorts of gifts, but absolutely unanchored and unmoored to the word. Absolutely thinking they've received revelations and all this stuff and they're not, they're not taking it back to the word. They're not letting the spirit illuminate Jesus Christ in his scripture, in his word. And so Satan wants us to be just crazy filled with the spirit and unmoored or dry as a bone and hitting people with Bibles over here. What he doesn't want is for us to be like Jesus who was and is the word. He is the expression of who God is to us. He's the word of God. He tells us what God is like and filled with the Spirit. But that's what Peter is here, and that's what he's called his church to be. So we want to be the convergence, right? It's a conference that we've gone to a few years in a row. We want as a church to be the convergence of the Word and the Spirit. That's what we see in the church of Acts, and I'm praying, Lord, would you do it again? Lastly, um, verse 14, what does it say? It said, they recognized that they had been, these guys don't have any education, but what? They did recognize one small detail. These guys have been with Jesus. And can I just say um, two brief points for discipleship and then for witness. For discipleship, there is no substitute. You can have all the Bible studies you want. You can have all the prayer sessions you want. There's no substitute for simply being with, having been with Jesus. And I just want to ask us, have we, have you been with Jesus? Do you smell like Jesus? Do you look like Jesus? Do you speak like him? Do you act like him? Do you love him more every day? Is he rubbing off on you? Because we become like the company that we keep. This is the point of going to the Bible. This is the point of praying, is to be with Jesus, the risen Christ in us, who takes us to the Father. This is the Christian life, and this is discipleship, to be with Jesus and with each other, and to invite others into this life together. That's, that's it. That's discipleship. That's being his disciples. Um, and for witness, if we look at verse 20, um, verse 20 says, for we cannot, this is, this is Peter, again, just, just rip-roaringly hilarious and so true, for we cannot, he's like, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. In other words, who am I going to listen to, God or people? Of course, God, so I'm not going to listen to you right? Razor sharp logic, hilarious. And then verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's the, guy, here's the deal, guys. I was there at the crucifixion. I denied Jesus. And there he was on the cross dying for me so that that sin wouldn't stand between me and him. He was paying for it. And yeah, he walked with me on the beach. That's recorded in John 21. He made breakfast for me by the sea. He could have squished me between his toes like so much jelly on toast. He could have. He would have been within his rights, but he was squished for me on the cross. And so he came to me and made me breakfast. And then he said, hey, can we take a walk? And he threw his arm around me. 
I saw him crucified. I saw him buried. I saw a spear put in his side. I saw blood and water come out, the medical sign of someone having died, their heart having stopped. I saw all that, Peter saying. I was there, and I walked with him by the sea. And I ate, as he says in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius, I ate bread and fish with the guy. I saw him rise up to the Father, and guess what? He's in me now. I can't but speak of what I've seen and heard. I've been with him. He's with me now. You can't shut me up, man. Sorry. Let's be witnesses and not just advocates. Not just advocates who advocate for the truth of Christianity, but people who say, I'm sorry, I've seen too much. Jesus and I, I know him, and he knows me. He's in me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he's the Savior. He's the only way, friend. Jewish, Muslim, agnostic, secular humanist, I don't care what you are. Living for the weekend, you ain't gonna find satisfaction until you find my king, and he's your king. Come to him, okay? I want us to be witnesses. He changed me. I know him, okay? So in closing, I just wanna tell you a favorite verse that I have um, that I posted in my office cubicle in Edinburgh and that I have posted here in my office cubicle. I can't get away from the cubicle, um, which is fine. (laughs) It's a good place to post inspirational quotes. Um, This is one of mine that I have up. It's from 1 Samuel 17, a bit of an obscure verse, but it says, when the Philistine arose, talking about Goliath, even if you haven't been in church much and you're a Christmas and Easter Christian, you still know the story of David and Goliath, right? It's in all the kid Bibles. Um, So that's the Philistine. When the Philistine arose, and he was nine feet tall, and he was a warrior trained from birth, when he arose and came and drew near to meet David, who was a shepherd boy, like a teenager, with a slingshot, what what did David do? It says, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, toward the battle line. David ran to meet him, the giant. Why? Because David was filled with the spirit of the living God. We see that with Peter here. He was timid as a mouse. Now he's bold as a lion. It's Christ. It's you, Peter. It's Jesus Christ himself. Um, The come at me bros, lacrosse team name, it almost got chosen. May we never forget it. May we be at a come at me bros church. Not, not, not because we, we, we think we have the stuff, we don't have the chops, but we are witnesses. He has given all to make us his own and he is in us and may he wax ever more powerful and brightly and greater um, until uh, we become lions for the Lord, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Um, let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for... Mm, so much to thank you for. Thank you for this, thank you for this body, this precious body. I just see you smiling over these people and loving them and drawing them under your wings, as it were, under your pinions, the soft feather inside of the wing of a bird. Just telling them, come, come in close to me. Like, you've tried this, you've tried that. You've tried all these things, but I'm calling you to myself. Um, I want you to come. I am the way by which you must be saved. Would, would we here even today if we've known you for a long time or if we've never known you, would we feel that compulsion? Holy Spirit, would you draw those that you're calling to yourself? Would you draw us to you? Um, would you make us bold witnesses? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.